everyone, you are tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots, aka me, your host. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation because not only is it with an organizer who I've had just the pleasure and humility of working alongside with back home in South Florida, but also someone who I think has a really important analysis of what's happening in this moment. Today's guest is Zaina Sus, who is a labor organizer in South Florida, a poet, and also the author of A Theory of Birds. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, dear. Okay, it's there's so many ways in which we can sort of start this conversation. It's been a particularly somber last couple of months. And I guess to start, we can sort of situate folks listening as to what what is happening right now? Where are we? We're right now in the end of February. What is the current situation um, of just the devastating genocide that's happening in Palestine? Sort of what are some things that you want to yeah, remind us of? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, it's it's difficult to summarize. You know, I think there's aspects of this violence, as many have shared, that is not new. Um, you know, 70 plus years of of occupation, ethnic cleansing, um, mass displacement, but there are so many aspects that feel um, so totalizing, so enormous um, that it is, it's hard to describe. Um, I think both it is painful um, and I think for so many of us, um, whether it be Palestinians, people in the world of conscious, um, people in the world who care about humanity, I think many of us did not expect to see this genocide and siege on Gaza last as long as it has, and to be getting to this point where it's unclear when it will end. Um, and so I think, um, as I was mentioning to you earlier, Nikki, I go back to, um, you know, this remark and, and mandate by Grace Lee Boggs often, which is this question of what time is it on the clock of the world? And so I think there's, um, aspects of this genocide, of course, that are felt, most deeply by Palestinians living um, in this moment, this chapter of excruciating extreme violence that has now taken the lives of 30,000 Palestinian people, um, over 12,000 children. But I think anytime we have a level of totalizing violence this extreme, of course, the world that we live in will never be the same. Um, and so I think what we're also dealing in is 
the ripple effects of such excruciating and extreme violence, how it is now shaped and reshaped the reality in which all of us are living in um, as people, as workers, um, as people of movement. And yeah, I think it will go down as potentially um, the deadliest assault of this century thus far, the first genocide projected in in real time live on our social media um, tools and applications. Um, but I also think it is a moment of extraordinary rupture in the world. And as with all moments of extraordinary rupture in the world, I think it is forcing thousands and thousands of people to reevaluate where we situate ourselves, where we belong, and what we need to do to shift our political reality. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm just taking all that in. It's, it's, it's just really, really hard to just, I think to your point, be waking up every day and, and seeing these excruciatingly painful updates every day on our phones. And I think also to your point, sort of us in the West, people conscious, people in movement, people who dream of a just world, of a different world, um, having to sort of recalibrate our commitments what we prioritize and just you know how we orient ourselves to the society and you mentioned something also around workers and i think this moment has also illuminated a lot of things around labor not just here um in the states but also you know i think seeing how videos of different workers around the world have gone viral by stopping shipment of arms, by stopping boats, has sort of sparked uh, a bit of a, you know, just a question and a fire within the West around, like, what is our responsibility as workers in these moments of extreme rupture and, and chaos and devastation? And, you know, I wanted to have this conversation with you because I think as someone who organizes with workers and has a background in organizing around labor, I, I was curious for your perspective around, you know, what are the sort of exciting things, if we can call them that, that are happening here in the States around organized labor and how it's responding to the genocide in Palestine and the sort of power that organized labor has to in some ways move the needle of what the status quo allows and permits so yeah i want to sort of pose it to you what are some sort of recent updates that are happening in labor that a we should know about and b just what is sort of how you're making sense of these things yeah absolutely i think as a palestinian and as a as a leftist um, as someone who's been committed to the labor movement for many years, I think what is true of this moment um, is that I think the 
extraordinary violence um, and genocide that Israel is enacting upon the Palestinian people with the resources and full support of the United States government um, and uh, investment of our public money into um, their genocidal machinery. I think what it has enabled, um, not for, for everyone, right? And I think this is really clear and important to understand is that quite unfortunately, you know, we are still living in an epoch in which um, support and solidarity with the Palestinian liberation struggle is still a marginalized position uh, within the West and within the United States. Um, that being said, um, I think that for so many of us who have been hopeful and investing in a resurgence of an internationalism in the labor movement, a kind of deep, enduring commitment to solidarity, not just to winning you know, better living and working conditions for US workers, but really attempting to see our role as being drivers of peace and solidarity for the global working class. I think that this moment um, and this genocide in Palestine has enabled a laboratory of real bottom-up organizing that I think is extremely important. Um, and it's not happening in a vacuum, right? And I think that's also important to recognize. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. the, the, the contradiction, right, of what's occurring right now is you have this somewhat unprecedented level of violence being enacted on the Palestinian people, on Palestinian children um, living in Gaza, but also in other as, uh, uh, areas of occupied Palestine. Um, that's getting a little bit of less coverage, um, including in the occupied um, areas of the West Bank. Um, and you have relatively unprecedented in terms of, you know, in our lifetimes, um, public declarations asking for a ceasefire um, from now essentially almost every major union in the United States. This is a big deal. Right. And so um, on February 8th, actually, the AFL-CIO, which is the largest federation of trade unions in the United States, which represents, you know, around 12.5 million workers in the United States, uh, finally joined the call for ceasefire in Gaza, Palestine. And so this is coming after 200 uh, U.S. unions, um, including locals, um, you know, across the country have been calling for organizing um, and demanding that international trade unions in the United States embrace a call for ceasefire in Palestine. Um, and so I think I want to name some of the unions that have been helping lead this effort and were uh, earlier to come out in favor of a ceasefire. Um, the United Electrical Workers, UE, in particular, has been very advanced on the question of solidarity with Palestine. Um, you know, over 10 years ago, they were actually the first 
international union to come out and support and sign on um, to the international call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Um, and so they've been really integral in this effort to organize other unions to embrace the call for ceasefire. The American Postal Workers Union, uh, pretty famously, the United Auto Workers, right, came out in support of ceasefire. IUPAT, which is the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, National Nurses United, SEIU, uh, National Education Association, Communication Workers of America, and the American Federation of Teachers. Um, and so now, and uh, a labor historian who I really want to name for your listeners, who I really encourage those who are interested in this topic because he's written really extensively um, on labor um, and the question of Palestine is Jeff Shirky. And so, you know, he writes that now with the backing of the AFL-CIO and the NEA, which are the nation's two largest unions, support for ceasefire is now kind of the mainstream position of the American labor movement. Again, this is quite unprecedented. Um, and we'll talk a little bit later about, you know, historically what has kind of informed labor's mainstream position of being more pro-Israel. Um, but I do think this is a really encouraging development. Um, and I think one that, that I think elicits hope, not because it's enough, because obviously it hasn't been enough to stop the violence, the bombing, the siege on Reze, but I do think the terrain is shifting. Um, and I think that's incredibly important for what it makes possible for our organizing, for our, solidar for our solidarity, um, and for the years to come. I really appreciate just your ability to kind of lay out all these different examples of workers across very different sectors joining on the call to demand a ceasefire and then also kind of reminding us of how many workers this this refers to right we're not talking about small unions or we're not just talking about this marginal sliver um, fraction of workers in, in the United States and I think you know something I've I've seen a lot during this time mostly really online that I'm curious if you have reflections on is you know calls for things like general strike um, and different days of, of strike which I think on one end have for sure sort of um, to all of us in the west kind of like reminded us of the sort of responsibility or in some ways complicity um, that we have to, in this economy, but I think has also made a lot of us think around, yeah, just the role of workers and, and how we could sort of use our labor or, or withhold our labor and also similarly for, for consumers, right? How we can boycott brands. And I think all of this content and dialogue online has become viral and, and it's been interesting for me to sort of see that discourse, but I, I want to bring that back to you and I guess I have some questions around like I don't know maybe it's silly but like you know what is possible in terms of striking in this country what are some things we should keep in mind around like what is required to make those things those demands more possible and more effective here in the United States um yeah curious curious what you think about that 
Yeah. Ooh, a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to start with talking a little bit more about what's happening in, in the U.S. labor movement to get to your question, Nikki. And um, when we get to the place of where our desires and aspirations are much more advanced and moving much more quickly than our material conditions, constraints, level of organization, I want to name um, that is extremely painful, right? I think many of us have had that experience. Of course, we want the violence to stop tomorrow, right? Um, we are willing to do whatever it takes many, right? The level of sacrifice, um, you know, the level of, of individual commitment and political understanding, like folks are ready. And through this conversation about like what's happening, both in terms of um, organized labor uh, in the U.S. around Palestine, historic actions of Palestinian workers, um, I do want to flesh out the difference between individual desire, individual action, and collective action, because it's really at the heart of the matter when we're talking about what it means to be organized as workers. Um, and so very recently, um, you know, earlier this month, something very exciting in terms of development of, um, of labor um, organizing in solidarity with Palestinians is there's now a new national labor network for ceasefire that's been announced. Um, and these, you know, unions represent collectively over 9 million union members. Um, so this is, you know, more than half the labor movement in the United States. Um, and so this includes the American Postal Workers Union, the Association of Flight Attendants, um, IUPAT, again, International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, National Education Association, National Nurses United, United Auto Workers, and UE, United Electrical Workers. Um, it's really, really exciting to see this happening, I think, for a few reasons. Again, it's one thing to say, you know, we want to see a ceasefire. It's something very different to be capable of having the organizing capacities to actually enact and implement, to hold political leaders accountable, to ensure that the bombs stop, and that eventually not only do we have a ceasefire, but we end the occupation of Palestine so that Palestinian workers can live free from this uh, ongoing decades-long ethnic cleansing of our people. And so I find it very encouraging to see that network, you know, coming into, into fruition. And I think what's really exciting, totally separate even from the question of Palestine, it is so exciting to see labor unions coming together around a question as it relates to international solidarity. This is not something that's happening very often in the United States. Um, and so I think that's quite encouraging. Um, beyond Palestine, our aspirations for a world um, of peace, um, absent imperialism and imperialist aggression and war. 
I think another thing that I want to name as it comes to the question of general strike, right, um, is that Palestinians, Palestinian workers have a very, very rich history of organizing and resistance. Something that I think has been painful in this chapter is I think a lot of the depictions, if Palestinians are depicted at all, you know, were either depicted as these sort of, um, you know, these racist tropes of being brutes, just violent, uh, non-human entities, terrorists, what have you, um, or were this sort of like helpless victims, right? Um, these people who are deserving of your pity. Um, but in both instances, we're just completely um, robbed of our agency and dignity, right? Um, and so I think a history that is not often told um, is that actually historically, um, you know, Palestinian workers in the 30s conducted the largest, the longest general strike in modern history in 1936. Um, and this really came actually inspired by a Syrian general strike that had led to um, and informed, you know, some of the fight for independence that that Syrian people were trying to earn, you know, from France in the 30s. Um, and so this was organized by the Arab national committees in Nablus and Yaffa. Um, and they won, you know, support from port workers, um, you know, drivers, urban trades, and nationalist youth. Um, and so I think that that's a history that like I feel really attached to and quite proud of. And it's, you know, a history that then you saw repeated, um, you know, March 30th um, in the 1970s in Palestine in what is now known as Land Day happened in 1976 um, in response to uh, Israeli aggression and attempts to keep usurping and, and stealing our land. Um, and so the land day general strike, again, was this coming together of all the different political factions across occupied Palestine to defend um, and protect our land, um, the land in occupied Palestine. Um, and it was led, you know, really in terms of this democratic front for peace and equality by the Communist Party in Palestine, um, which at the time, right in the 1970s, um, became the most popular political party, both for Palestinians, but then also non-Zionist Jewish um, citizens of Israel. And so there were these solidarity strikes all throughout occupied Palestine. And to this day, we observe Land Day on March 30th as a day of solidarity and honoring our people and our long struggle for resistance. Um, and so that's really important to me. And there are other, you know, um, examples of solidarity among Arab workers and Palestinians that, that I can reference. Um, and so, for example, in 1973, actually, um, uh, the Arab Workers Caucus of the United Auto Workers, which were actually mostly Yemeni workers, led a wildcat strike um, uh, in protest of their locals' purchase of Israeli bonds. 
um, that same caucus, the Arab Workers Caucus, would actually then organize to attend the UAW's national convention with key demands, um, not just to divest from Israeli bonds, but really that they wanted their union, the UAW, to um, divest from all forms of violence that were oppressing not just Arabs, right, but other, um, you know, black, brown, yellow, Asian, black um, communities across the global South. So historically, Arab workers, Palestinian workers, have a very long and rich history of global solidarity, not just fighting for their own, right, um, conditions, but really to push their unions, to push their people, to push their communities um, to act in solidarity for the global working class. So we find ourselves in the United States where we have this really interesting contradiction, right? Historically, unions are enjoying some of the greatest popularity they have enjoyed, I mean, in modern history. Unions are quite popular. Unions are kind of sexy right now, right? Um, people are like, we want a union. There are more people who want a union than have access to one. Um, that's a great problem to have, right? And so I think it's informing how people relate to the question of getting organized with their coworkers, what workers in the U.S. feel like they deserve, understanding that they're being exploited, you know, feeling the the shocks of the pandemic um, and how these billionaires have just enriched themselves beyond belief while people are barely making ends meet, right? The issue, right, and this is where I'm going to get back to what we started with, the issue is we cannot click or snap our fingers or do one quick thing and have a union, right? Um, anyone who has done the very difficult work of organizing with their coworkers, that is that quite transformative, um, frustrating, sometimes heartbreaking work of organizing your coworkers can tell you quite honestly, um, it is slow, arduous work. Um, that is a fact. And it's fascinating because it's, that part of it has not changed, right? In the whatever tens of hundreds of years of organizing, right? Um, hundred plus years of organizing with our coworkers, right? What's also happening is social media has this really interesting role of being a check on mainstream media and their erasure and silence on the question of Palestine, their absolute complicity right, as so many now um, incredible organizations, you know, Writers Against the War on Gaza, um, you know, all these union members of uh, writers guilds and, um, you know, locals that are organizing among writers and journalists have called out in terms of the media's complicity with the siege and genocide in Gaza will we'll tell you and have, and have said, right, and so there, social media becomes quite crucial to say, look, look at what's happening. Um, and quite disturbing, disturbingly, um, Israeli soldiers are themselves sharing their own disgusting 
dehumanizing propaganda. So it's it's very clear. Anyone who cares to know what's happening, it's very clear. There's plenty of evidence, right? What that does to us as human beings who are consuming, who are observing, who are watching, is it also feeds this urgency that we all feel collectively. We want it to stop. We want it to end. And that comes up against what it is to organize and to be organized enough to actually have enough power to stop this violence um, that is taking place in Palestine. I don't think we, collective we, have figured out a great solution to this tension, to be quite honest with you. Historically, and this is where I think you know many have talked about what's the role of the militant in this moment. So not necessarily acting within an organized entity, but you know sometimes smaller groups of people um, acting, you know, much more quickly. It is a fact that, like historically, sabotage and militancy have always had a place in the labor movement. I mean, that's a fact, right? And so, you know, the people who like um, take on acts of violence against the boss or against the owner class, people who sabotage um, business as usual, um, you know, that's always had a place. So I'm definitely never going to be the one to dismiss or admonish that kind of behavior. There, There is always a role for that kind of activity. What does become difficult is when people, I think, are using particular terms like general strike or like I'm going on strike individually. Um, and I want to kind of talk about like why that's not ideal. And I think the reason why that's not ideal is I think it muddies and muddles what it is to participate in particular forms of collective action and collective activity. A boycott, for example, is not a strike, right? And I think that's really important to understand. A boycott is a collective commitment um, to withhold some kind of purchasing power to put pressure on a particular target. And so BDS, um, which you know, was founded, you know, in the early 2000s by Palestinian trade unions, activists, organizers, people, um, and has now spread all over the world as a nonviolent tactic um, for people to actively participate in to undermine, right, the financial um, and economic base of support that the Israeli occupation and apartheid enjoys um, that has been quite effective and has had numerous victories. They really do take the time to identify particular targets. I think what I've seen right in this like flurry of energy and activity, which is really exciting, right? To see people want to be helpful and like want to participate is there's a number of kind of new targets that sometimes it can kind of be like a little bit like, oh, today we're boycotting X, tomorrow we're boycotting Z. That I think we need to be careful of. Um, and I think that we should be as people who care, as people who are involved, I honestly think we should always be suspicious when anyone is trying to offer a sort of like, here's the shortcut. If we just did this tomorrow, we'd win. There, That does not exist, right? Like it just doesn't. And we need to be honest about that. And it's okay that that feels bad. That's okay, right? It's okay to acknowledge we do not have the level of power we wish we did. There's nothing wrong with that. I think when we confuse 
a power analysis that is honest and rigorous with, we just need to do this and it's fast. Um, I think that's when we get into like really serious conflicts and resentments in between people who ultimately typically agree with each other that I think can be quite undermining of our project. Um, and so strikes only make sense when collectives of workers are withholding their labor power. Um, and as you know, many labor organizers um, will we'll say, right, the, you know, famously um, Jane McAlevey, um, you know, with her book, <laughs> No Shortcuts, is that we don't conduct strikes unless we have a super majority of workers in a particular work site who are committing to participate, to withhold their labor um, against the boss, right? So strikes are not things that we kind of just, you know, can call from one day to the next, even wildcat strikes, right, that, that are not pre-organized, still in order to be effective and meaningful require a super majority participation of workers. Um, and so I think my uh, humble piece of advice, I think, to our people who care, who like are just trying to be helpful, um, we can come up with ideas of actions and activities without having to call things strikes, without having to say, tomorrow we're doing a general strike, because a general strike is actually when multiple sectors at the same time are withholding right their labor power, or in the case of um, you know, owners of small businesses, um, you know, shutting their doors to shut down segments of the economy, right? Um, and so just because we have an aspiration, a desire to get to a certain point and level of our organizing doesn't mean that we're there yet. Um, but we can get there over time, I think, but just understanding that it's going to take many years of coordinated um, activity, action, and organizing. I mean, first off, I, I, I want to say thank you because I think like, you know, so quickly, I think you walked us through, you know, really significant historical moments um, that sort of demonstrate the, I mean, just historical and just ongoing militancy of Palestinian workers, of Arab workers. Um, and there's just countless examples. And I want to say just like, thank you for sort of like regrounding us in that. And then also appreciative of this, just like getting more specific with language because, you know, in social media, I think where sometimes like things become, you know, as you mentioned, like muddled and it's like, okay, well, what does this mean? You know, I think for me and all the time I've been using social media, I think the last um, couple months have been sort of the time where I've seen people using the word strike more than I've previously seen significantly so. And yeah, I think these sort of markers of distinction and being more specific around like, what do these things actually mean? And, and these are tactics that actually have a lot of historical like repertoire, you know, um, and getting clear around the difference between individual action and collective organized tactic and strategy. Like those are super helpful reminders for me. And, and I think, yeah, just really appreciative. I, I want to, I think maybe go a little deeper or maybe tease out a little bit around this tension because it's something that's, you know, I think as conditions 
seem to get more fractured, not just here in the empire, but also in all corners of the world. I think this tension you brought up of, you know, our aspirations, the, the world that we know we deserve versus what is the actual assessment of like our current organize, organization, our current power, our current ability to move and shift things. Um, I think for me, I've, I've, you know, I've been to like several meetings and rallies and actions and different things. And on one end, it's so exciting that there's so many people who I've talked to that for the first time ever, they've like, um, you know, gone to an organizing meeting or it's making them think differently and like, oh, this moment is making me want to join my tenants union and like learn more about these things. So there is this really profound ripple effect that you've been mentioning, you know, or like been alluding to of people wanting to get organized, of wanting to do something. But can you talk a little bit more around like, you know, what it what is it going to require? You know, what are some of like the key things folks should keep in mind? If you know, if you're new to movement, if you are in movement, like what are some key things we have to remember in this moment for sort of the long haul building power? Um, yeah, curious for, you know, what comes to mind. I think, yeah. I want to talk about political despair because I think we don't we don't analyze it enough um, collectively, and I think because despair is such a profound and heavy sentiment, I think we sometimes try to avoid it. And avoidance, I think, can look a number of ways. I think it can look like people shutting down and dropping out of movement um, because they don't see a path. Um, They feel alienated and isolated. I think it can look like Mm -hmm. resentment and conflict, a sort of a shifting of blame because our enemy is so powerful and it the challenge seems so daunting and we feel so ineffective. Let me focus my energy and the pain that I'm feeling on this person in this meeting who pissed me off and who had analysis I didn't like um, because they're in front of me and I can talk shit about them and that can make me feel like I have a little bit more control than what I actually feel. So that shows up a lot. Um, I think we need to be really honest about that. Political despair shows up a lot. We're feeling it. We're holding it. It's affecting us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what this type of organizing requires of us is to have a really, really long arc understanding and relationship to history. Um I think that is the only way that we can survive what just feels so overwhelming in terms of how devastating this this chapter of our lives feels like. You know, when I went to the first, um, you know, March on Washington in solidarity with Palestine, which was the first time actually going to a DC uh, protest for Palestine without my parents. Because the first time I went, I was much younger, maybe 13, 14 years old. 
and it was just Arabs. <laughs> it was just Arabs <laughs> and Palestinians and we were, you know, marching and just felt, you know, like this is what we do with our community. Um, you know, people don't really talk about Palestine and it's always going to be like that. So to see just seas and seas of people, seas of people, every stripe and variety of person there, people with their babies. Um, and I got really emotional, I think a couple times. Really, yeah, I'm emotional right now. Yeah. <laughs> it just like, it was, it was, wow. Yeah. What, what, what a historical moment and like to be there and experience that. Yeah. There was a couple moments that really stood out to me. One was a, um, a veteran labor organizer, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember their names, but veteran labor organizer who had been part of the Answer Coalition for many years. And he said, I need you all to know this. I marched in the streets against apartheid in South Africa when our government, the U.S. government, called Nelson Mandela a terrorist. And seven years later, he was president of South Africa. And um, that just, you know, gave me chills, you know, and it's true. The other person who um, I carry in my heart and who I'm thinking of right now is, um, was an indigenous First Nation sister who came up on the stage with her younger siblings, um, you know, wearing their traditional dress. Um, and she said, you know, 300 years ago, the U.S. government said that we did not exist and that we would not exist. And here we are. Um, and, you know, my Palestinian siblings, um, who, sorry. You, you will exist in the future too. And we are going to walk with you every step of the way. And I think I needed to hear that. And I'm sure many, many of us do. Because I think there's also, if we're being honest, especially living in the West, there's a guilt and a shame, I think, that we can carry sometimes. Um, yeah. Because it could have been any of us, right, who, who are on our land um, under the, the terror and the tyranny of the Israeli occupying forces. It could have been any of us. And I think some of us, you know, maybe even would have chosen if it meant being on our land, if we were, if given the choice, right? And so I say all that to say, um, there isn't an easy answer to what it means to hold in our hearts that um, our people deserve to live and deserve to live freely our people deserve the right to return to our ancestral lands. Um, the U.S. government is aiding with our money, our resources um, from our labor, right, is aiding this horrific annihilation of our people and the annihilation of peoples all over the world. Um, that being said, it's really important to understand we are living in the afterlives of struggle. We are living in the afterlives of the Arab Workers Caucus Wildcat Strike. Yeah. 
and their uh, organizing to be at the UAW delegation with their demands in 1974 that went ignored. And now we see the UAW announcing plans to create an exploratory commit, uh, committee to not only right, call for a ceasefire, but to divest from the war machine, to transition their members that are working in factories that are building bombs that Israel uses to kill children, to explore what divestment and towards a just transition would look like. And so you have researchers, academic researchers, who are members of the United Auto Workers and factory workers who are members of the United Auto Workers thinking, how do we uh, rebuild our economy, reimagine the role of workers in uh, fighting for peace? Um, and that's thanks to Palestine, right? That's thanks to struggles of Arab workers, right? And so we are here because of what came before us. Um, and those that will follow after us will have a different terrain because of what we are doing today. And so nothing we do is in a vacuum and is for vain. Um, and I hope that people know that, um, even though it all feels so insufficient, ultimately what we do every day is plant the seeds for future generations to carry on the mantle of struggle for a more just world. You know, as I was hearing you sort of speak and reflect and it sort of reminded me, you know, in my own sort of organizing the moments of political despair, right? You know, coming from a place like South Florida, which you know very well and intimately um, all the way through to this moment. And I think, you know, I just want to say that I think you're someone that I've often looked to for sort of just recalibrating towards hope and, and not in a no, sort of naive way, but really in like a revolutionary optimism that is grounded in reality, that is grounded in all these examples of us and, and many other workers uh, across the world choosing to organize against all odds and I'm very grateful for that because I think you know it emotionally and like spiritually you know I I'm also struggling with these things right I think we all are and something about your words and and all these examples feels really comforting and is sort of a reminder that yeah I mean it doesn't stop here and it's not starting here right we're part of this much much larger trajectory and lineage of struggle and i think i just want to express gratitude for that reminder i think zaina also you've offered us so so much in this conversation i'm not sure if there's some final thoughts and final reflections you want to share out with me or with folks listening um but if not i mean i guess i'm just curious like what is sort of grounding you in this moment in addition to all the things you've already offered us? Yeah, I think what's keeping me grounded is um, just a recommitment to 
be part of that surge from below that I think is really pushing um, the labor movement to take on a posture of solidarity, of progress, of fighting for a world um, that will be more just and more peaceful for the workers to come. Um, you know, I think that there's just been so much grassroots organizing of the rank and file in this moment. Um, and that has really been the driving force that has pushed these unions to take on the positions that they've taken. Um, and so I think that this moment requires all of us um, to be as creative and committed and patient as possible. I think the lives of our people and the children to come depend on it. And, you know, I hope that in the years to come, you know, we will look back on this chapter, both just with disgust and shame, but also with an understanding that it was the beginning of a new kind of orientation and guiding force um, that the labor movement in the United States does not have to be a tool of empire, does not have to be um, just solely focused on insularism and maintaining the status quo, um, that we can have a fighting labor movement that wants to transform our society. Yes. Zena, thank you so much for just talking with me. Um, thank you for your clarity, your analysis, your reflections. I'm so, so grateful. Um, as always, as every time I talk to you, I feel like I've learned a lot and I'm feeling just clear um, on my own, my commitments to struggle. And thank you. Thanks for being on the show and thanks for saying yes to talk to me. Thanks, Nikki.